Kia ora koutou. welcome to First Up, it's Ratu, that's Tuesday the 15th of November, ko Nathan Coming up, Simon Marks is with us from Washington as Republicans ponder their future. We will ask Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis why they're pledging to repeal offshore oil and gas exploration ban, just as world leaders at COP27 warn that fossil fuels are setting us on a highway to hell. We hear the reason why a Japanese town is live streaming leaders' faces during meetings, you want to hear that, and their repair cafe giving a second life to old or damaged goods. So we fix whatever comes through the door, or at least attempt it, from toasters, irons, heaters, all the things I did when I was an apprentice in the 60s. Uh, welcome to First Up, I'm Nathan Rarere. We have a very interesting show for you this morning. Uh, we'll be in Taranaki for some news and also I find out this this great innovation in a Japanese council. Can't wait to tell you about that in the next 10 minutes or so. But we will start in the United Kingdom and it is Ali J who's with us. Kia ora Ali, wonderful to, to hear your voice again. Now this comedian Joe Lysette, he's always quite interesting. They ask him for comment often. What What's this challenge that he's laid down for David Beckham? Nathan. Yes, he's. Uh, this is in the past day. So what we're looking at is um, the World Cup. The Football World Cup is kicking off in Qatar this weekend. It's kicking off on Sunday, and there has been there's been lots of coverage here, but it doesn't feel like that much excitement about it, or not in the usual way that people are talking about the World Cup. And that's because uh, there's talk that maybe it should never have been in Qatar. Also talking about their their um, record on human rights and their treatment of LGBT. BTQ plus people as well. So as part of this, Joe Lysett, he is he's a very good um, comedian. He used to present the Great British Sewing Bee as well and this fantastic program where he took up people's causes against um, big businesses and things like that as well. But he's now issued a challenge to David Beckham. So in this video, uh, to do with the World Cup, he's uh, talking about the fact that David Beckham has reportedly been paid £10 million to be an ambassador for the World Cup. Uh, and Joe Lysett has said he should drop this deal uh, and he's promised to donate a lot of his own money if he does. So he said Qatar was voted as one of the worst places in the world to be gay. Homosexuality is illegal, punishable by imprisonment, and if you're Muslim, possibly even death as well. So he said if you end your relationship with Qatar, talking to David as well, he says he'll donate £10,000 of his own money uh, to charities that support queer people in football. And if he doesn't drop the deal, David Beckham, uh, Joe Lysett says... Just before the opening ceremony, which is this Sunday, UK time, about midday, uh, he's going to put the money in a shredder. And so that's his, his challenge that he's laid down to David Beckham. Still no response from David from Beckham as yet. Um, yeah, t- 10 no, million versus 10,000. That's 000. what he's done. Yeah, that's, that's a little, uh, that's, that's not, they don't normally balance out on the seesaw, so I'll be interested to see how it goes there with that. Now, um, it's interesting, we've got a story coming up about floods there in New South Wales again, uh, but it's unseasonably warm where you are. Yes, it's been, I mean, it's been quite bizarre. So this actually, it was Remembrance Sunday um, yesterday, the 11th of November, and usually it is quite crisp here, quite cold. Um, We're also seeing the first of the um, Christmas adverts coming on TV as well, and they're filled with scenes of snow and people opening presents in in cosy living rooms. But it's actually been uh, unseasonably warm, over 20 degrees in quite a few parts of the country, 21 degrees in Wales, which is the warmest Remembrance Sunday 
say on record. Apparently, though, I mean, it's been happening across Europe and we're being told that it's not to do with climate change. And at the moment, it's to do with airflow dragging warm air up from Europe at low pressure as well. So in the next couple of days, we're more likely to see cold, regular November type temperatures over here. But it has been a little bit worrying, I have to say. Yeah, that's the cold November rain that Axel Rose sung of. Hey, let's talk about this. The Home Secretary, why has the Home Secretary been in Paris signing a deal? So she's been she's been in Paris to meet with her French counterpart, and apparently this deal has been in the pipeline for a, a couple of months. But it's particularly relevant at the moment because over the past couple of weeks we've been talking about higher levels of migration to the UK, lots of people coming over the Channel in small boats as well, and the fact that processing centres here in the UK are at more than uh, capacity. That's what we're talking about a few weeks ago. So Suella Braverman has been in Paris. She's been announcing this multi-million pound deal, 63 million pounds to be precise, uh, that will mean there'll be an extra 100 French officials on patrol in France to try and stop people crossing the channel uh, in small boats. There's a record number at the moment and the government are saying um, that this will help and also it will help uh, British and French officials sharing information and, and sharing intelligence. So, I mean, there has been, Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, has said, I mean, this is a good step, but it's a tiny, tiny step in the right direction as well. And mostly criticism of the fact that the one of the biggest problems here is that huge backlog and the delay in um, in the process for asylum seekers, for refugees who arrive in the UK being processed. Apparently only 4% of asylum claims in the last year have been processed. So it is, I mean, it's a tiny step, but at the moment there is this huge backlog that really needs to be addressed. Well, there's uh, LEJ there who managed to put her ponamu on and ride both sides of the Women's Rugby World Cup final the other day. Uh, a little bit of sadness, but a little bit of happiness too, I think. Ellie, thank you very much for your time. Always wonderful to hear from LEJ in the UK. At 11 past five, um, Ellie brought up something there. Uh, the Christmas songs already in. I heard uh, Christmas jingles in the supermarket yesterday, and I found myself going, Ugh! as I stood there by the muesli bar section. Is it, am I being a Grinch already? Or, or in my head, I'm thinking, can't they start on the 25th? Can't they start on the 25th? Or is this just a, yeah, anyway. 2101, is it a bit grinchy or is, it, is that actually, do you find it a bit grinchy or do you actually find it maybe it's a bit nice? Because, I mean, it, look, it's been a, a hard year. This year has been a slog, which is what we've said the last three years, but it's been a very hard year. So uh, is it a bit grinchy right now to be finding myself going, oh, come on, want to hear a Christmas jingle in the supermarket, 2101. Let's go to Australia now. Thousands of people in New South Wales are stranded after another bout of flooding. New South Wales Search and Rescue says they will be calling on New Zealand for help after more than 100 rooftop rescues in the centre of the state after the heaviest rain in 70 years caused a dam to spill. In the town of Malong, dozens of residents were forced to flee and shelter at the RSL as floodwaters rose to roof height. Local real estate agent Scott Peterson told our producer Matthew Tunison last night that the water in his, in his office was five feet deep. You couldn't get into any of the shops or businesses till about... Sort of 6.30, 7 o'clock this morning because there was just still too much water. Bro, it comes up really, really quickly and then it, it, dis- it drops away really quickly as well. So it's like literally a flash flood, but we had five foot of water go through the office. You know, all the printers and everything just floating in there like they were fishing floats, mate. Yeah. Was it scary? I don't know if you've seen that footage of that 40-foot shipping container just cruising down the main street. The noise 
and all the debris in the water and just the, the velocity, you know, it was, it was intense, mate. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. It was, it was wild. Wow. And is the area prone to flood, flooding or is this pretty unusual? No, it is a little bit when, you know, it's quite hilly around here. I don't know what part of New Zealand you're in, but when we get really massive, like a massive storm like that, the Molong Creek actually comes up so quickly and it, it comes up above where all the stormwater runs into it. So the water then pushes back up through the stormwater drains and it can't go anywhere. And then, you know, we had 150 mil on top of that in a couple of hours and it was just chaos, mate. We had a, a huge, you know, another flash flood about three weeks ago, mate. And we'd only just cleaned the office out and got the carpets dry and everything got back to normal. But uh, this was, the last big one was in 2005. And yeah, a lot of people saying that this one was just as bad, you know, or if not worse. And, um, but mate, it literally, it, 11 o'clock last night, there was five foot of water in the office, and then by 6 o'clock this morning, you know, it was still running out of the office, but it was all but gone, and then made it midday. You, you wouldn't even know there would have been a flood, except for all the carnage, yeah. Oh, shucks. Now, just lastly, Scott, this must be devastating for you, all that damage to your office, What uh, and obviously other folks there who've, who've presumably lost so much. What next? I mean, are people homeless? Uh, what's going to happen? Mate, look, you know, I've got to look at it with a really real set of eyes. And, yeah, look, our office got just trashed. And, but you know, there was some bigger businesses out there. The local hardware store, mate, it just got absolutely decimated. And half their produce would be um, 100 k's downstream by now. And all their – and the, the local supermarket, they, they really sort of wore the brunt of it damage-wise. I know of families that, yeah, have lost, you know, the whole house, you know, everything that they own literally – But it's a really tight-knit little rural community and everyone will rally around and we'll make it work like we always seem to do. That's Scott Peterson, a real estate agent in Malong. It is a quarter past five. We're going to go to Japan now, where one town has started live streaming its leaders' faces during meetings. But first, our correspondent in Tokyo, Chris Gilbert, told us why, as the world's population continues to rise, the opposite is happening in Japan. Yeah, the world population is growing, and Japan does have the opposite problem. The population of Japan is shrinking. It's been shrinking for many, many years, and it's continuing to do so. In fact, just last year, the population of Japan dropped by, I think, more than 600,000 people. Like, that's a lot of wow. people to just disappear in a year. And also Tokyo for the first time as well, because, you know, there's been an urbanization issue of people leaving the countryside to go into the cities to find work. Or well, even Tokyo is shrinking now. And, of course, you know, the pandemic played a big part in that, of course, as well, because there's a chronic labor shortage and people haven't been coming into the country. But really, the two main drivers of this have been an aging population and a low birth rate. If you can imagine this, 30% of the country is over 65 years old. Hmm. There's almost... One in every three people is over 65 years old. That means one in every three people is collecting some type of pension, and that leaves the two-thirds of the population that's left to support those people. And what the government has effectively been saying is like, hey, with this aging population, all the people who are working today who are in their 40s or their 50s and looking forward to retirement in a couple of decades, well, they have to pay more into the pension scheme now. They can expect to work another five years longer than they thought they were going to, and they can expect to receive less at the end of it. It's a real-world consequence of this. And also, 
more and more young people, a record number of young people are saying that they have no interest anymore in starting a family, getting married, having babies, any of that good stuff, because they want to focus on their careers. They want to focus on their lifestyles, typical millennial stuff, right? But hey, that's what's happening. But it's, the forecast isn't good as well. You know, they're saying that by 2050, Nate, they're saying 25% of the country might go boom, gone. That's like not here anymore. There's a, it's a population of 125 million people. They're saying by 2050, the population drop could be 25%. Oh my, that's that's incredible. It's staggering actually. And the word staggering gets thrown around, around a lot, but that is. Hey, um, we've just obviously had new uh, mayoral elections here and council elections in New Zealand. Tell me about this uh, Japanese town that's um, keeping <laughs> keeping track of their officials <laughs> in, in Ichikawa. <laughs> I had to read this story two or three times to make sure this wasn't happening in Blenheim or something. It had so much New Zealand about it. They've had a problem in Chiba, in the town of Ichikawa, as a very common problem of the sleepy salary man, and especially in their city hall, their town council. People have been caught literally napping on the job, napping through meetings, speeches, debates, all of the above. One man was even caught reading a historical fiction, like... Okay, I've been in meetings in Japan before where you have to sit and listen to the chart show, listen to the big boss, give a lecture for two or three hours, and you get that feeling where no matter how hard you try, you can't keep your eyes open. I know how hard it is, but I did not bring a historical fiction with me along to read while my president of my company was giving me a lecture. But this has been happening in cheaper city council meetings, and so the solution to this that they've come up with is like, hey, you know what? Two or three years ago, remember we installed those YouTube live streams into the council chambers so we could, you know, show everyone at home what's happening? Well, why don't we just, instead of whoever's talking, focus those on whoever's not talking, specifically the people who are sleeping? Uh, and so they've started doing this. So if you actually, I'm going to try this. I have to find this. The, 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 the Ichikawa city of Chibakan, the live stream of the council sessions, if you can find it, Go and have a look at who's snoozing. The problem is that it hasn't actually fixed the problem. Must be very sleepy, something very sleepy in the water over there in Chiba because no, they don't care about the cameras. They're determined to nap through these meetings and it's still happening. That's Chris Gilbert in Tokyo. Are you in favour of council meetings putting cameras on councillors' faces to see if they're paying attention to one oh one? I'm Nathan Rarere. You are listening to First Up here at RNZ National. Uh, Simon Marks will be with us from the States uh, very soon as the Democrats celebrate victory in the Senate. And also we're going to hear about repair cafes and the good work they do. Time to go to Taranaki now for the latest from our local democracy reporter, Craig Ashworth, who's with us. Kia ora, Craig. Hey, you've been um, crunching the numbers on what impact Māori wards had on last month's local elections in Taranaki. What have you found? Yeah, Kelda Nathan. Um, look, I'd say really they were only half successful. Māori wards were uh, created to increase representation and participation. So to put it plainly, more Māori councillors and more Māori voters. Um, now the five councillors in the new Māori wards in Taranaki guarantee each council has some representation of Māori views and interests at the top table. But despite all the publicity for the new wards, there's no evidence of increased voting by Māori. So, uh, the seats. Māori are just over 20% of the Taranaki population, and with those five Māori wards, Māori councillors sit in 14% of the council seats now. But the uh, general role electorate 
largely turned its nose up at Māori candidates for the 45 general wards. Only two Māori candidates gained a seat, and one of those was elected unopposed uh, into Harwood Award, where there weren't enough candidates for a contest. So general ward voters picked just one Māori councillor, Dini Moyahu, here in New Plymouth's district-wide ward. And uh, no Māori were elected to general wards in Stratford District or on Taranaki Regional Council. So without those new wards, Māori would occupy just 4% of the seats at council tables. So that shows the impact um, the wards have brought. Uh, Māori candidates were a bit more successful on community boards, winning uh, 5 out of 31 seats there, 16%. But I note that uh, Turunanga or Ngāti Ruanui endorsed three candidates for South Taranaki community boards. And, um, you know, despite their sort of stamp of mana, voters rejected all three. So so the numbers show that Māori wards boosted representation, but voting not so much. Yeah, yeah. There's um, simply no data uh, collected on voters' ethnicity in council elections, Nathan. So it's been impossible to know how many Māori voters are having their say. But the new Māori wards gave the first insight into turnout, and the news wasn't good. Almost three-quarters of eligible voters on Taranaki's Māori electoral roll didn't cast a vote. So just over a quarter had their say, despite, again, that wide publicity about the new wards. Uh, In South Taranaki, the two Māori wards both attracted around 27%, and in New Plymouth, uh, the Māori ward there, 28% of those on the Māori electoral roll voted. Um, Now, of course, overall turnout in council elections is also low, uh, across those two councils here, 41% of voters cast a vote. But that means the Māori ward turnout was a third lower than the overall turnout. Yeah, it was a low all across the country, everywhere, wasn't it? I mean, lots of Māori on the general roll too. So what's the story there? Yeah, yeah. Half Māori voters are on the Māori roll. Um, the rest on the general roll. Still no evidence about those voters. Um, an Auckland Council researcher found 11 percentage point gap between Māori and non-Māori in Auckland's parliamentary elections um, is mirrored in the city council's election. So if that's the same in Taranaki, Māori voting in general wards would be eight percentage points uh, behind the non-Māori total. That's that's a fifth lower proportionally. That's really just a, a best guess. So what's the idea to bring um, that Māori voter to, uh, voting total up? Uh, look, I spoke with Dr Annie Te One from Te Atiawa and Ngāti Mutinga. She's a Victoria University lecturer who's an expert in Māori and local government. She says, look, from her point of view, councils have never looked like a place for Māori leadership because our systems of government were set up to exclude Māori on the assumption that British-style governance was the best. And she says that exclusion, plus you know other aspects of colonisation and land confiscation, created what she called a community of Māori who weren't provided for by central or local government, so they saw no point in voting. And really, she's hoping the record number of Māori councillors and mayors elected this year might start to change things. You know, she says, look, we've never seen local government uh, in this shape in Aotearoa before, so she really hopes that voting's going to grow as local government looks more like a place for Māori voices and Māori leadership. But uh, sort of like a colleague of hers at Auckland University, Dr Lara Greaves of Ngāpui, Pākehā and Tarara, um, she warned that change is going to take a while. She told me, look, new councillors need to go out, kanohi to kanohi in the community, build relationships. That's got an educative function. And, and she says that longer term, that's going to have an impact on turnout. But she reckons, look, other factors are going to work against that, um, including increasing uh, inequality into generational inequality. So, you know, regular voters tend to live at a stable address, they own their own home, they're solid in a geographic community. But, um, you know, Dr Greaves says that 
doesn't look like the future for most Rangitaki Māori. They don't expect to own a home before they're 40. Craig Ashworth there with us uh, from Taranaki. Thank you very much, sir. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. Let's have a look at happenings on this day. I was quite surprised to find that uh, a birthday haver today hasn't had a number one album. Number one songs, though. Uh, 90 years old today, Petula Clark. Way to go. Uh, on this day in 1861, Dunedin became the very first New Zealand town with a daily newspaper. Happy birthday to you, Otago Daily Times. It was the first issue. And, of course, this music, you know uh, what it means when you hear it. Yeah. You know, it means it's 1985 and you're sitting in your lounge and you're watching some pro wrestling. There is the macho man, Randy Savage. His name is Randall Mario Poffo. Changed his name to that. Was originally a baseball player. He was born on this day in 1952. Happy birthday. Uh, this day in 1904, inspired to invent something that you could use and then throw away to keep customers coming back, the magnificently named King Camp Gillette manufactured a razor with disposable blades and patented the invention himself uh, on this day in 1904. King, what a name, King Camp Gillette. On this day in 1970, uh, and a, a whale was exploded in Oregon uh, by some road workers. We're going to put that link up onto the page. Look, it's not the nicest story in the world, but you will be, what, when you watch it. So the exploding whale of Oregon... Have a look at it on our Facebook page. Also on this day in 1986, the Beastie Boys released their album Licence to Ill. It was the first rap album to go to number one on the Billboard charts. On this day in 1990, it was revealed by their producer that Millie Vanilli were not actually singing those songs. And then the Grammy was revoked. And on this day in 2001, a machine came out called the Xbox. 178.5 million of those have been sold since 2001. And that is the happenings of this day of our life, the 15th of November. Time to uh, speak dollars and business with Andrew McRae. Kia ora, how are you? Uh, g'day Nathan, I'm good, thanks. Okay, tell me about this this growing risk that high inflation is changing people's behaviour in a bad way. What's the bad way? Yeah, well apparently we're becoming over-accustomed to high inflation, getting just too used to it, which in turn makes it even harder for the Reserve Bank to try and contain it and, and get it down. Now currently inflation here is just over 7% and it's the bank's job to contain it to under 3%, so they've got a long way to go. Uh, a big job, but not helped by the public's belief that high inflation will persist, and this is where the our behaviour kicks in. The increasing cost of living means we push much harder for a, a bigger wage increase, and according to the ASB chief economist Nick Tuffley, employers will become more understanding about it and are more likely to give out big pay increases. Now, the problem is that feeds inflation and makes the central bank's, uh, bank's job much more difficult. It's a real struggle, and it's a bit like a, a you know a vicious cycle. Now, meanwhile, the, the Westpac's latest economic review is out this morning, 
and it's expecting inflationary pressures to hit home as more and more people have to refix mortgages at the at the higher rates. Now, the economists are saying many borrowers have yet to feel the real impact of those higher interest rates. They talk of uh, pressure on prices and wages, and because of it, uh, the odds of a soft landing for the economy, which we want, is getting slimmer. Now, this then ties back into what we were saying just earlier about the pressures coming from the public and making it hard to contain inflation. Uh, Westpac uh, senior economist Statish uh, Ranchod says a lot of people are factoring in high inflation, but rather than you know slowing down our spending, uh, we're, we're pushing harder for those bigger increases in wages. It's you know obviously a normal thing to do, but when it happens right across the country and, and the economy, it gives life to inflation, and, and that just hangs around like a bad smell. The economic overview does expect both consumer spending and demand for workers to soften also over the next year. Uh, its chief economist, Michael Gordon, believes that persistently high inflation means the official cash rate, which we know as the OCR, is expected to rise further, and that, that will peak at about 5% now next year. He also thinks the Reserve Bank, while it feared better than most in recognising you know, the need for action, the scale of the inflation problem means that it still found itself probably on the back foot a bit. So Nathan, we're not out of the woods yet and it appears there's going to be more pain before you know things start to get better. I think it's interesting what you're saying there, Andrew, about you know people believing that inflation's going to go forever. And I thought probably because every time we hear from an economist this this last few months, it's always oh it's awful and it's terrible and it's going to be like you know what I mean. It's and and I think if you don't follow it every day and and you're hearing your information from this, it does feel like it's just going on forever. That's right, and we, you know you see it every day. You go to the shops and the prices are up, you know, the cost of living's up. So mm. it's obvious, as I was saying, we want more money, you know, more wages. So that that cycle as we're talking about just just keeps on perpetuating really yeah Andrew thank you very much for your time you can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at 10 to 7 let's have a look and see what your New Zealand dollar will buy you today it will buy you 60.93 US cents 90.86 Australian cents 59.01 Euro cents 51.87 British pence 4.30 yuan and 85.66 Japanese yen it's 26 to 6 you're listening to First Up on RNZ National, we go to the United States now, where the Republicans are getting closer to scoring a majority in the House, but 19 congressional races, including several in California, remain uncalled, and joining us from the United States, it's Simon Mark, so it's always a pleasure to say kia too. Simon, what, what's the latest you can tell us? Ah, Kia ora, Nathan. Well, the latest I can tell you is that uh, it seems almost certain still that the Republicans are going to have a majority in the House of Representatives. The Democrats face an uphill climb uh, in those remaining House uh, districts where voting is still underway, uh, most of them in California and Arizona. Uh, However, it is pretty apparent that the best case scenario gives the Republicans a wafer thin majority. They may end up with a handful more seats in the House of Representatives uh, than uh, the Democrats. And that, of course, is not where Republicans expected uh, to be. And frankly, it's not where the Democrats expected to be uh, a matter of months ago. Uh, So it's pretty clear from the results that we've seen so far, both in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, recaptured by the Democrats. President Biden, of course, was in Cambodia uh, over the weekend when he learned that Nevada uh, had tilted the balance in favour of the Democrats. He immediately 
telephoned Charles Schumer, the Democrats' leader in the Senate, who will once again be Senate Majority Leader, to congratulate him uh, and Democrat candidates who had uh, brought their campaigns over the finishing lines. Uh, All of this indicates that voters across the country are rejecting Uh, Republican extremist candidates. They're particularly rejecting Trump-backed candidates in many of these districts and states. Uh, And uh, President Biden himself, speaking a little bit earlier today uh, in Bali, where he's going to be attending the G20 summit tomorrow, absolutely uh, sort of identified the distinction between the Republicans who have won in these midterm elections, indicating that he believes that he can work with them and they broadly back more global engagement by the United States, trying to drive a wedge between those Republicans and the Trump-backed, more extreme right-wingers in the Republican Party who really have suffered in this election cycle in an indication that uh, voters all over the country are really rejecting them. Simon, uh, Donald Trump is not known for going, oh, okay then, I'll just leave it, (laughs) right? That's not his thing. So what do we know about what you think will happen? Will he announce that he's running for for president, do you believe? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 9 p.m. local time in Florida on Tuesday night. Donald Trump is going ahead with that announcement at Mar-a-Lago. Efforts by some of his top advisers to uh, dissuade him from doing it. Uh, They wanted him to at least to postpone it until after the the outcome of the runoff race that's taking place for the Senate seat in Georgia. Uh, He absolutely turned that down flat. And there's a couple of reasons why Donald Trump wants to get this done now. First of all, uh, because, as you know and indicated there, Nathan, he's never a man who's particularly willing uh, to own up to any weakness. And so he argues that the problem with the Republicans in this election cycle wasn't his vocal backing uh, for candidates. It was the failure of centrists like uh, Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, for rejecting Donald Trump's entirely false claims that there is election fraud in the United States. Had those Republicans, he insists, come around to his way of thinking, the party uh, would have triumphed and delivered the red wave that he was promising. Secondly, he wants to become the first person to enter the race for the presidency officially because, you know, kind of like a wolf marking (laughs) his terrain, he really wants it to be a bit of a land grab. He wants to lay down a marker and say to other Republicans, "Okay, come at me. And thirdly, uh, he undoubtedly wants to try and stay ahead uh, of the hot breath of the Department of Justice that he can feel on the back of his neck. And uh, by entering the president's presidential race, he will further be complicating the calculations that the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, has to be making about whether to take criminal charges, to to, to, uh, indict uh, Donald Trump on criminal charges relating to the January 6th riot uh, on Capitol Hill last year and his role in fermenting it. Yeah, it's always interesting when we speak to you. Thank you so much, sir. There he is out of the United States, Simon Marks. Uh, it's coming up to 20 to 6. I'm Nathan Rarere here at First Up on RNZ National. So still to come, we're going to have a look at repair cafes which breathe new life into old or damaged items. And uh, we will ask National's Deputy Leader Nicola Willis about her party's commitment to women's sport in the wake of the Black Ferns' magnificent World Cup victory. <laughs> But a music always makes me wish I had like an old tan leather jacket with a woolen collar. <laughs>
I feel the like they should change it. Change it to the morning report sting. That's <laughs> so good. That's just so good. The professionals, the morning reporter here after six. It's Marnie Dunlop who's with me now. Kia ora, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm very good. It's good. It's been an interesting show this morning. I found out that in Japan there's a place where they're they are training cameras onto city councillors during meetings because they keep falling asleep and some of them are reading books. So that's it. And I thought to myself, do you know what? Many workplaces have said, no, you workers at home working from home, you need to be monitored. So I guess it's the same thing. Oh my goodness. How good. Where is the trust? <laughs> well, they're falling asleep we and reading books. We unfortunately can't afford to fall asleep on our job. No. <laughs> Imagine. What do, you, what do you got today? Well, they say never mix sports and politics, but we're doing exactly that. We've got Grant Robertson, uh, Deputy Prime Minister, and obviously some Minister of Sports on the show. And one of the issues that has come up since the incredible final on Saturday with the Black Ferns is around pay parity uh, mm. in our sport discipline. So we'll have a chat to him about that as well as other issues. But also the story around sp- the proposal uh, interim plan to reduce speeds on 400 kilometres of state highway. Uh, we'll be speaking to a plethora of people to unpack that plan uh, have a look at what some of the proposals are. One of them that I'm looking at quite closely is Ngauranga Gorge. They want to reduce that from 80 to 50. To 50 down there? Because I know that um, uh, the road from Taupo to Napier there's in the really windy bits and that's mm. 80 and people were complaining but there's only two bits you can go over 80 on that in there. It's very windy. I don't want anyone going over 80 around exactly. those corners. I agree, I yeah. agree. Yeah. Anyway, it's being taken from us. 20 <laughs> kilometres. You're taking that for from safety. us. For safety. For safety, Waka Kotahi says. So, Jeez. yeah, we'll have more on that. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, in a, a world full of fast fashion, cheap appliances and quick-to-outdate electronics, a group of repairers are urging people to think twice before hiffing things in the bin. Repair cafes are an international phenomenon that began in the Netherlands in 2009 and first came to New Zealand in 2016, with the current edition ramping up since the start of the pandemic. Charging nothing, but with a koha encouraged, the volunteer repairers do their best to fix all sorts, saving people both money and a trip to the dump. Reporter Leonard Powell went along to get his favourite fleece sewn up and to chat with those involved. I've been in repair cafes for about nine or ten months now. Got suckered in by my wife. She said, I think you'd like this. So we went and had a look and it was the shortest three hours of my life. Not for her, she was waiting in the car. That's Eric, Repair Cafe's resident electronics wizard. I have an electrical practising licence. So we fix whatever comes through the door, or at least attempt it, uh, from toasters, irons, heaters, all the things I did when I was an apprentice in the 60s. Repair cafes have now popped up in six locations across Auckland. This one takes place on the second Saturday of each month, upstairs at Undur Cafe on Karangahape Road. Eric likes to spread the love around multiple locations. I prefer to do two, and even better, my wife prefers I do two, so I do New Lynn on the last Saturday of the month, and then on the first Friday of the month, Friday night, I go out to Te Aratu, and that's just about enough to satisfy my need for social contact as much as anything else. I ask Eric what the cat's dragged in today. It's a coffee grinder, and I don't like coffee, but I've got it to run, it just wouldn't work. Coffee grinds get into the little bearings in the motors and make them go solid, and that's it. There's a guy who had a touch desk lamp, which I couldn't fix, a couple of things against us here, one of them's time and the other is parts, which is why I don't often fix toasters, because you'd have a thousand different elements for different, all the different toasters that are out there. Across the room, 
Pete is hard at work, gluing up a unique-looking model sailing ship. A chap bought this in, and if I understand correctly, it was his grandfather's model ship that is, if you look closely, is made out of matchsticks. And I said, oh, that must have taken a long time, and it turned out that his grandfather had been inside as in, I guess, jail, and had a lot of time to build this elaborate model out of matchsticks. On another table sits two sewing machines and a bunch of needles and thread. Volunteer Kurt says repairing items that are special to people makes it all worthwhile. The joy people get from having something they have emotional attachment to, so it might have zero or very little monetary value, but the emotional attachment, if you can just repair that patch on someone's trousers or fix their bag that their mother gave them, that type of thing, it's extremely rewarding. At the same table, Janice helps to sew, hem and mend items. For her... Repair Cafe provides a space of positivity. Well, I think there's enough doom and gloom around in the world at the moment, but if you just want to feel a bit better about the world, come along to Repair Cafe and see some goodness happening and some great stories, along with people having, like this rucksack I'm fixing, has had adventures around the world to keep it going rather than chuck it into landfill. The owner of that rucksack is Visalina, who heard about Repair Cafe through a sustainability group on Facebook. There's been a few in other parts of Auckland, but this one is the closest to where I live, so I jumped on the opportunity. You've got a bag with you today full of things. I have that backpack, my hiking backpack that's been all around the world with me. It needed a bit of fixing on the straps. It's otherwise in great condition, just the straps that were a bit worn out, so I'm really, really stoked that it's going to get some more use out of it. And I have a few clothes that I've tried to mend myself, but they keep breaking in the same place. Obviously, I'm not doing a good job enough, so... I'm glad that someone who's actually a professional can help out with this. It's a sentiment shared by Juan, who had zips repaired on a jacket and a backpack, as well as a shoe glued back together. This is my first time coming, and actually it's the first time that I have been in like a repair cafe. I had never heard of them before. The items that I have here with me to fix, I had kept them maybe, I don't know, like for two years or something. And I'm visiting my family at the end of the year, and I was going to bring all of those items with me there to fix them. So I was going to ask my mom or someone, like, could you help me with this? Because I don't know how to fix them. But they were easy to fix, and... I think that's what is great about places like this, that you can bring your stuff and give them like a second life. I think it's very good. So next time you're thinking of throwing away that faulty Bluetooth speaker or the microwave isn't closing properly, don't be shy to visit your local repair cafe first. You can find them on Karangahape Road, Te Atatu, New Lynn, Piha, Manurewa and coming soon to Oriwa. Anything goes. Well, almost anything. Oh yeah, we've seen it all, but... I have to be honest, we can't do water blasters. <laughs> I've had two of them. <laughs> Honestly, we're upstairs at a lovely cafe here in, in Auckland, but we don't have the facilities <laughs> to plug in a water blaster and, and try water blasting to see if it works. Yeah, yeah, it's the, generally the smaller stuff. Time to catch up with the Deputy Leader of the Opposition now. So this morning we're talking Nationals' vow to once again allow exploring for deep sea oil and gas, whether the Reserve Bank still has questions to answer when it comes to the cost of living and the alleged exploitation of nursing students. But first, it'd be rude not to, I started by asking her about our world champion Black Ferns. I was so fortunate, Nathan, to be at Eden Park and 
goodness me, it was electric. You know, I was on the edge of my seat backing our women to win. And boy, oh boy, did they bring it over the line. And I tell you, the crowd, it was magic. It was electric. It was something quite extraordinary. And I think rugby will never be the same again because it was so wonderful to watch as I left the stadium, seeing the number of young women, yeah. uh, some of whom actually burst into a haka as I was leaving. It really, it, it moved me. It brought tears to my eyes because those young women have seen rugby as a game that fills stadiums when women play it. And they've just seen one of the best games of rugby that we could hope for. And that's just the way that they will see the world. Were you like me? Did you jump pretty high at the end there when that, that line-out still happened? Hey, there was such volume coming out of my mouth that my throat's still paying the price today. <laughs> I suppose while we're there, we can ask you, what, what's National's commitment to, to women's sport? Because as you said, you've just been involved in that and how great to see so many girls and, and, and young women getting to see that. Well, I think women's sport is really important and I see that in two ways. One, I want girls and young women being able to participate in a range of sports and have those options. But what I also want is role models playing sport at the highest and professional levels. And I think off the back of that game at the weekend, there should be a lot of corporate sponsors and commercial entities who look at the game anew and should be prepared to back uh, women's rugby as a code because, boy, it was great to watch and there's a huge audience out there for it. Um, Of course, the government has a role to play as well, and I acknowledge that. But, look, I think that's a sport with a huge future ahead of it. Yeah, it reminds me of when the, uh, the US women's uh, football team just you know hit big time over there and all of a sudden sponsors arrive into that and I hope the same let's let's move to other things now this is an interesting thing there the association of salaried medical specialists says it's time that we have universal dental care that's an interesting one does national support that not really look I'll tell you why look I think dental care is very important I'm glad that we have universal access to it for under 18s And I think that doing more work around educating people on dental health and what they can do is pretty important. Nationals put forward policies on that in the past. But when I look at the health system today, I see so many pressing needs. And I think we have to make sure that our emergency departments are able to get through people on time, that we are actually delivering elective surgery without people dying on waiting lists, that people have access to a GP We're not getting those basics right at the moment. So I think before we add other layers of universal care to our health system, we need to first be sure that we are delivering on the basics. Okay. Um, We've heard some pretty uh, disturbing stories this week, and I had a chat uh, on the show yesterday morning talking about the AUT nursing students. They've been doing unpaid clinical placements, pulling huge shifts, not even getting allowances for parking at hospitals, and if you've ever been to one, you know how expensive that is, and they're under extremely stressful conditions. Should it be allowed that they're doing these unpaid clinical placements there, these AUT nursing students? Well, look, uh, I think it's important that they are cared for properly. I think we do have to acknowledge that those nurses are still in training. And when we look across a number of professions, whether it's doctors, whether it's teachers, uh, whether it's engineers, uh, many of those professions involve a period where the training happens in the workplace in real time. Uh, What we don't want to do is give people such a poor experience when they're in training that they leave all together. Uh, and at the moment, a lot of nurses in training do do that. We, we apparently lose 29% of trainees in that first year of study. 
So National is looking carefully at what we could uh, offer as policies to both retain our existing nurses but encourage more people into training in the future. But we have to do that in a way that, as I say, is fair because there are a number of professions where the expectation is you do do some of your training in the workplace without full pay. You know, unpaid internships are interesting, aren't they? Because I get what you mean. Like, you know, you, you want to get your foot in the door. And when you're keen, and it's very hard when you've got no experience on your CV, right? Because I remember when I was in that stage, and they'd be like, you've got no experience. And you're like, but how do I get experience? But then there also there becomes that bit where you're like, have I hit the stage where I'm being taken advantage of here by an employer? So what, what's your feelings on unpaid, uh, unpaid internships and, and just about how long it should be, I guess, b- before people are starting to be paid for what they're doing? Well, in this case, there is a mandated set of requirements set by the Nursing Council about the number of training hours that people have to have had in order to qualify as a nurse. Uh, So those requirements are set out by the Nursing Council and they reflect the hours of experience they think are required to say that someone is fully qualified and able to be uh, operating in a range of medical settings. So these are less internships and more essential training so I just differentiate it that way. Okay. Last time we spoke, you called for a review of the Reserve Bank's policies during the pandemic and whether these contributed to the rate of inflation. So they put out this 122-page report, releasing it, found that the monetary policies during COVID and worst-case scenarios were avoided. So are you satisfied with that? I mean, I know the Reserve Bank put it out, but it's peer-reviewed. No, we're not satisfied with it. The analogy I'd give you, Nathan, is it's like someone being asked to mark their own homework and then being then to find their favourite teacher to review whether they've done a good job of, of that marking or not. And I think that these are really significant uh, questions for New Zealand, which is, did the monetary policy response during the period of COVID-19 over the past couple of years get it right or not? And what that report points to is the fact that actually the quantitative easing program may have been too large, that interest rates may have been kept too low for too long, and that the funding for lending program, which is still offering cheap debt to banks, uh, wasn't designed very well. So the question I wanted answers to was, okay, could those things have been avoided? And if they could have been, who's responsible for the mistakes? The the review that the Reserve Bank put out didn't go near those questions of accountability, and I think it fell short. World leaders have been meeting at COP27 there in in Egypt, and they're talking about, obviously, the climate there. National, you've you've doubled down on on commitment to repeal the ban on offshore oil and gas exploration. Do do you think the public's behind you on that one, considering what we're looking at now at COP27? I am yet to meet a New Zealander who thinks it's good that we are burning more coal than we have in a decade. Because the reality is today that we are importing coal from Indonesia in big carbon burning ships, putting it in trucks and taking it to Huntley to burn for backup electricity. We will burn more coal this year than we did any year National was in government, around three times as much actually. And so National's point has simply been Uh, Faced with the choice of burning coal or burning gas, 
gas lets out a lot less emissions uh, and is favourable from that point of view. That's Nationals Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. So much feedback this morning. I'll try and get through as much as I can. If women rugby players want the same pay as men, let them play in the open grade with men. That's equality. Here's another one. Uh, reduce speed limits. Where's the police enforcing those, please? Uh, that's Adrian in Lower Hutt. And this morning I asked, am I grinchy about getting ugh when I hear Christmas jingles in the supermarket? Apparently not. Uh, Nathan, not grinchy at all. Totally agree with you from a fellow... Grinch. It's Stephen from Hamilton. Christmas jingles playing in a supermarket is a great reason to buy your stuff online. Oh my goodness, more has just dropped in. Uh, no, Nathan, you are 100% right, says Anthony Wade. No Christmas songs before December. And we had, uh, I forget it was, I think John was saying, yes, the Advent calendar starts on Sunday the 27th of November. So maybe, maybe that can be our demarcation line. So much feedback this morning. Thank you very much for it. That's why the First Up audience is the best. Morning Report is next with Marnie and Corin From all of us here at First Up, please have yourselves a fantastic and wonderful day and we'll be back in your ears. A popo.